Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast, and here is your host, Ryan Mack. Welcome to the Payments Journal Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Mack. Now, there is no shortage of new technologies in the payments ecosystem, but when we take a look at cutting-edge topics like Web 3.0, NFTs, cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies, stablecoins, and blockchains, they often rise to the top. Now, much like any new technology, individuals and businesses must educate themselves to have a proper understanding of how the technology can be utilized and what are some of the risks and rewards associated with implementing or not implementing the technology. So to dive deep into this, I'm joined by Bradley Reese, who is the Chief Commercial Officer at Checkout.com, and Tim Sloan, who is the VP of Payments Innovation at Mercator Advisory Group. So there's certainly a lot of insights to unpack on today's episode. So without any further delays, let's start the show. So Bradley and Tim, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on this episode here. We're, we're really going to be taking a deep dive into some of the newer modern technology here, really kind of surrounding uh, stable coins and NFT and Web 3.0. Uh, so Bradley, I want to start off this conversation here with you because we recently came across an interesting quote from you that said, if NFTs are the gateway for consumers to enter Web 3, stable coins should, sh- should serve the same purpose for businesses. Now, that's a very interesting statement, and I want you to unpack exactly what it is that you mean by that. But before, maybe we could kind of give maybe a little bit of an overview or kind of a 101 description of what stable coins are so that we can make sure that we're all on the same page before we dive into the rest of this conversation. Absolutely. Um, I may actually take even one step slightly further back than that, because often when you read about stable coins in the same breath, CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, will also be discussed. Um, And I think it's actually easier to start with a CBDC and look at some of the value that that potentially can bring, and then to pivot into some of the differences between CBDCs and some of the similarities between them and stablecoins. So a central bank digital currency is effectively a digital form of fiat. Now, traditionally, central banks will print money. Uh, But this is basically the digital version of that. And we may ask why we're looking to do this or why so many governments around the world, almost 100, I think, have active stablecoin projects in some way, shape or form. There must be some value that they see derived from this initiative. Um, In short, old financial networks are just that. They are old. They're running on old technology. They're very heavily regulated and there's multiple parties involved. In theory, a central bank could issue digital currency directly. Uh, That would mean that potentially there would actually be limited need for intermediaries such as banks who, of course, while very reliable and very well regulated, there is also risk, as we've seen historically, of things like insolvency. Um, But some of the values I think that central banks are looking to bring to their own domestic markets is just ease of distribution. There's a lot of potentially risks around privacy that I think people are concerned about. But the flip side of that, of course, is that it is much easier to track things digitally than manually offline or in the physical world. So again, if you want to track expenditure, this could be a very useful tool for that. If you think back over the last couple of years, stimulus checks that were delivered to the population in the US in many cases, doing so through a, a digital means would have been just that much more efficient than sending things through the post. Um, so arguments around things like financial inclusion are definitely top of mind when we look at some of the benefits that we hope a CBDC could bring. 
Obviously, digital invariably means less intermediaries, and in theory, that should also mean lower cost. So now we're looking at financial inclusion for those who need it most, uh, a more efficient distribution mechanism that is both faster and cheaper. Uh, but of course, is that itself a crypto transaction? And the short answer is not necessarily. You could absolutely run a CBDC on-chain using blockchain technology. Um, but as we saw recently, uh, MIT and the Federal Reserve of Boston piloted a project, Project Hamilton, where they were able to see, I think, 1.7 million transactions a second. Uh, that compares very favorably to the most uh, advanced payment network, someone like Visa, who touts to process 65,000, something like you know a blockchain like Solana, Stellar. There are others which have proof of stake protocols behind them, which have similar throughputs, but obviously 1.7 million dwarfs that completely. Um, the point is, is that it doesn't always have to be on chain. And that I think is the right way to kind of pivot now into what a stablecoin is. Unlike a CBDC, which as most central banks, of course, 1971, Nixon famously unpegged the dollar from gold, it's a promissory note. So it's not actually asset backed. You're putting your faith in the regulator and effectively the country to ensure that dollar or peso or euro or pound. Um, the difference with stable coins is that they are asset backed in some way, shape or form. And of course, there's different flavors of stable coins. We don't have to go into that rabbit hole, but there are, you know, the most obvious example is to say that a stable coin should be one to one backed with a fiat currency pair. And there's definitely, you know, short term commercial paper, algorithmically generated stable coins. There are various other flavors, but to keep it simple, let's assume that a US denominated stablecoin like USDC, USDP, UST, there are many, many out there. Um, let's assume that they were all backed one to one with the dollar. The difference here is that there is no central authority who's issuing via any of these networks. Um, you do have to mint the stablecoin. So for example, someone like Circle will take a US dollar and mint a USDC for that. Once it's in its digital form, it will then normally run that USDC on chain. And this could be on a variety of chains. There's not one blockchain that operates USDC. So really the core differential here is CBDCs provide a lot of benefits around efficiency, cost, uh, movement of money, uh, traceability. Uh, but a stablecoin run on chain brings many of the same things as well. The difference is it's not issued or controlled by a central authority. So the downside of a CBDC is that do I think the PBOC, the Bank of England, the Fed will design interoperability by default? I don't think they will. And we can come on to SWIFT in a second and the role that potentially an organization like that could play. But of course, the idea of an internet driven, a blockchain based technology, uh, which is used to route stablecoin transactions, it is almost by default global in the same way that the internet should be you know, globally accessible. So there's definitely trade-offs there, but in effect, a stablecoin is a digital version of typically the US dollar, although there are many other currency denominations appearing all the time, uh, that enables people to transact and receive and send money in a digital format. So hopefully that's explained on the at least stablecoin CBDC piece. To go on to kind of the next step as to why I made that comment around it being a gateway, we need to look at the problems that this solves. And I've already touched on some of those. Um, but in the same way that I think NFTs brought a lot of people into Web3, you don't have to be a cryptographer. You don't have to, you know, even necessarily have a browser-based wallet where you custody your own private keys. You can actually go and buy an NFT using Fiat, using your Visa or your MasterCard or your Amex. Um, 
And I think that's one of the big appeals. And we've seen, of course, a lot of publicity recently. I think Paris Hilton was on Jimmy Kimmel's show talking about uh, bored apes. Uh, fine, you know, there's obviously a lot of buzz in the industry. And I think that has brought a lot of people in. So I think a lot of consumers' first touch point with crypto won't be yield farming an altcoin for, you know, attractive APY, it will be a product that they recognize something which they like the design of, uh, something that maybe has a celebrity tie in and brings them closer as a fan. We've seen companies like Socios talk about, you know, how fans of club teams can potentially then vote using this technology on issues that are important to them or not. Um, and so I think that's why NFTs serve that purpose for consumers. It's much more palatable to say, oh, okay, I understand what this NFT does. It maybe gives me special access to the concert. It's easier than potentially self-custodying, you know, your ETH or another form of crypto and then using that in a Web3 environment to make transactions. So it's not always about payments crypto. There are many different pieces to the blockchain world that go outside of payments itself. However, with stablecoins, it very much is around value transfer. And if we look at the inefficiencies that exist today, you know, ACH is moving in things like RTP to real time. We're not fully there yet. But again, that's only in the US. So traditionally, it's been very hard for me to move money from my bank account to someone else's. There's multiple parties involved, there's cost involved. And the big problem is, of course, it takes time. That is exponentially worse on the international uh, side of things when, again, it's not always the case, but SWIFT often costs a lot of money. It can take up five days for that money to move. Um, there are complex regulatory environments and also different old technology stacks in play there that are just not efficient ways to move value across the world. So if you're an organization who has liquidity issues, you value cash flow, you need working capital, uh, or indeed, if you have needs to send money globally, uh, you can do this in many ways, but that's where stable coins will help from a cost and a time perspective, potentially taking a five day and a $35 transaction, which only works Monday to Friday, to instantaneous 24 seven and free. So it's a significant step forward. And I think businesses will recognize that that will benefit their businesses. So while they may not be comfortable with, you know, transacting in ETH, SOL, any of the cryptocurrencies, something that is pegged to something they do understand, i.e. fiat, for example, like the US dollar, it allows for the benefits of the technology to be realized without the risk of volatility that people normally associate with cryptocurrencies. So I happen to be a proponent of stable coins as well. I mean, when you take a look at JPM coin or the Signature Bank Signet Network, and now Signature Bank has acquired the assets of DM to build a, a even bigger, broader stable coin. And those assets included exchanges around the world. So it could become much more of an open kind of stable coin. Uh, those, those are all great controlled methods for being able to move assets for businesses. The, the, the analogy that I have problems with is NFTs, they are the drug. The, you don't know what you're buying and you don't know who's selling it and you don't know the quality. So if NFTs today in the unregulated space, you know, you don't know whether the technological platform is secure and I've seen several that are not. You don't know what the provenance of the item is. Do they really own that? Um, it, there's just so many holes in that unregulated space that it gives me the willies. <laughs> <laughs> not to say people won't get rich. 
I didn't, I, I'm not implying that there's not some people are going to get rich, but there's probably far more people that are going to get burned in the existing environment. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see both sides of this coin. The example I use is I'm not an artificianado. I, uh, I think that I definitely lack that temperament and appreciation that others have. But it's the same way that if someone puts a, a crypto punk in front of me, do I admire the artwork? Personally, no, but that's personally. It's the same way if someone puts a Jackson Pollock in front of me, it looks like a drunk five-year-old broke into their parents' <laughs> tool shed and got the paints out to me. But it doesn't mean that that doesn't have value to other people. So I think prescribing value to things is, again, very personal when it comes down to art forms. That said, you're right. You know, is that NFT actually yours? Do you have commercial rights to it? There are lots of questions which are now increasingly being asked, which I think will gradually improve the quality and the safety of people who are looking to either invest or own for the fact that they just really like the piece that they're buying. But NFTs definitely will move beyond that. And I think while, you know, expensive JPEGs may have been the story of 2021 and still today, let's face it, we are seeing various other applications. I mentioned already socios and how, you know, clubs can issue them. Uh, obviously, artists are now, I say artists as in celebrities, artists, influencers are definitely getting into this as a way to connect close to their fans. And then there's much broader problems that maybe aren't as sexy. But, you know, I bought a home recently and I had to buy title insurance. That was thousands of dollars. It blows my mind that I have to do that. A transaction that happened on chain, for example, with an NFT representing that housing asset, it would be irrefutable. And that's the beauty of the technology is it does provide a lot of security around the history of ownership as well. So I see what you're saying, but I do think that the potential of NFTs, we're just scratching the surface and it goes far beyond artwork. Oh, Bradley, you and I are in sync there. I'm, I'm talking about the existing platforms that are out there, but it also is likely to become more and more commercialized or the regulated environment will start to adopt NFTs as a mechanism, as you say, for title insurance or something else, where there is somebody who is providing assurances about the provenance of that item. Um, and yeah, it will evolve into something incredibly useful. Again, the, I think we're in sync on the monkey. <laughs> It's a good way to finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly have to agree. And, and I kind of want to tie a little bit into this conversation here. You know, when, when we really are kind of having conversations around crypto and stable coins, I begin to see kind of the story parallels here that the payments industry that was going through when fintechs really started to gain momentum. You know, at first, uh, many who looked at them really kind of almost as a little bit of an invasive species. And now that dialogue, it's turned into like, well, no, it's an, it's an absolute partnership uh, between the two. So when it comes to stable coins, do you believe, Bradley, that we're kind of really seeing this similar storyline play out here? Potentially. I think one of the differences is that, again, I'm not going to linger on CBDCs, but, you know, governments are taking an active interest where in the fintech sector, regulators play a key role in creating an ecosystem or an environment where young companies can flourish. Absolutely. But a lot of the innovation was very much led at a grassroots level. Um, there was a definite consistency, though, and that was that banks were providing a whole host of services in often inefficient ways. So you can look at examples such as Checkout.com in the payment space. We're a young company, but we're leveraging state-of-the-art technology to improve on what we saw were problems in the way that traditional consumer payments were handled for merchants. 
Um, you could look at companies like Chime, Revolut, Varo, Nubank. I mean, these guys are presenting better banking experiences for customers. Um, but often it did develop into a partnership. I mean, while some of these organizations will have banking licenses within their own jurisdictions, often they're partnering with more traditional financial institutions. So it definitely doesn't have to be an either or, and you can see a convergence here. Stablecoins for me are slightly different because the point is, is that they shouldn't, at least in philosophically, be owned by anyone. And that's kind of the beauty of them. The challenge is, is that we talk about blockchains and composability. Composable means that you can build on top of a chain and effectively that takes the form of applications or dApps, uh, what decentralized applications. Uh, the issue is though that most chains don't talk to each other. So while I could run a USDC transaction on the Ethereum chain or the Solana chain or the Stellar chain or others, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to be interoperable with each other. Uh, these are problems that can definitely be solved. People are looking into bridging. I think we're going to see, you know, more consolidation eventually happen in the space. But the point of stablecoins is anyone can use them. I should be an individual and I should be able to send a stablecoin across the world to someone who I know or don't know. And I should be able to do that in real time for free and of my own volition. But equally, businesses should be able to send money to businesses. Businesses should be able to send money to their customers and customers should be able to send money to their businesses. And stablecoins definitely have the potential to allow for that. There's potentially a lack of regulatory frameworks in place today that will definitely put a little bit of a headwind in place because of course, you don't want to do something that later turns out to be unregulated, but the technology itself can definitely deliver on that promise to improve the movement of value between any two parties or multiple parties globally. I'm in total agreement. I I will say I would put making sure if we don't frame it as regulations, making sure that the environment you decide to work in has protections and is secure, not participating in money laundering and, you know, knows who is who is sending money to whom, and that that is the real entity. Um, as long as you have confidence and investigated that environment and feel good about it, then absolutely. Um, ultimately, regulations will catch up. Indeed. I mean, there's definitely a role for KYC in Web3. And the purists will in some ways hate that because it should be, you know, self-custody of your funds is key without a bank, but self-custody of identity is probably equally key. That said, there are genuine reasons why KYC exists. You shouldn't probably allow people to send money with or send value rather with no controls in place because of course AML is real and terrorism funding is real. Um, but again, I think there's a lot of learnings that Web3 can take from what was already in place. But most likely, as I said, that word before convergence, we want yeah. to allow the technology and the potential of it to flourish while also taking a sensible approach to risks, which normally will take the role of regulators to determine. If we had perfect identity, most fraud would be eliminated. And you look at the washing that takes place on NFTs, you go, well, if somebody can have five accounts and just move that NFT back and forth, that value can skyrocket and sink back down in a moment. You know, let's let let's change the the scope of this conversation just slightly a little bit here, and I kind of want to talk about where the electron meets the the silicon here. Um, 
Now, Bradley, at the beginning of the conversation here, you know, you kind of talked about um, some of the additional value of stablecoins. So we were talking about, you know, for businesses side of things, it was to be able to help with liquidity. It was you could be global. There's the cash flow, the speed and the cost aspect of it. So I'm curious, maybe you could be a little bit more blunt in terms of some of the business models that you see uh, for stablecoins and kind of what they look like. Yeah. I mean, examples always help. Right. So um I'll probably go for three and I'll try and keep them them short. So let's say you are in the money remittance business. So, you know, MoneyGram, Wise, West Union. Uh, they operate in different ways, but they essentially often have to move money, small amounts, cross-border. And it's expensive and inefficient, as we've already discussed, to do that. You can do it in different ways. You can balance liquidity and hold liquidity all over the world. But then that becomes an exercise in, in hedging. And of course, then you have to run multiple different regulated banking facilities globally or where your customers are sending money to and from. Um, Again, stablecoins allow you to do this in theory on chain instantly. So someone could walk in or go online to any one of their sites. The transaction could be run on chain instantly for to nothing, maybe not free, but a fraction of a cent. So in that sort of business, the alternative would be they take money in via a bank transfer or even a debit card, for example. And as efficient and great user experience as has been developed, especially by you know the schemes over the last 70 years, it still is a case that there's a settlement cycle and they have to run on the traditional banking networks. It may be T plus one or T plus two or T plus three. In that case, then the MoneyGrams, the Wises of the world, they would need to front that liquidity. And then, of course, they're taking a line of credit. It adds cost to their business, inefficiencies by having to work with multiple new parties. If, in theory, then that money could be transferred to them on demand or hourly or instantly, then that liquidity gap disappears and you're making the system much, much more efficient. So anyone who has cash flow or cash flow is important for their business, especially fintechs, money remitters being probably the best example, exchanges as well, of course, they need to deploy funds in the capital markets as fast as possible. There's definite value there. The next example I'll give is, is let's say a gig economy, um, especially an international one. So the companies who are freelancer networks, for example, very often you'll have an SME in an affluent country contracting a cost-effective developer, for example, to do some services for them on their website or you know, help them with SEM. And they may be paying a few hundred dollars to someone in Kenya from the US. Again, the companies who act as the marketplace have a really important role here in, in connecting the seller and buyer, but they also have to run on those traditional payment networks. So if they're taking in $100 in an escrow format or similar, upon completion of the project, how do they get that $100 to Kenya? Well, at some point it needs to get there. And if they don't have a you know Kenyan banking facilities themselves, again, this is something the stablecoins could, could solve for. Admittedly, if that person wants to use that currency in their local market, they would then need to convert it into Kenyan shillings. Um, that, again, may be costly and not simple. So there's definitely first mile and last mile problems to solve here. But the actual move, movement of money from, for example, in this case, the US to Kenya has been done, again, on chain using the right chains for free and arrives in near real time. The alternative would be, again, using that sort of Swift-esque example, that $100 that needs to get there may have $35 cut out of it, another 5% taken on FX when they convert it, and will take five days to get there to begin with. So it's just very, very inefficient. And that's, again, something that the technology can really solve for. 
And then the final example I'll just say is peer-to-peer. I mean, Venmo works really well, right? Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Zelle works really well from the banks. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you start to go international, it does become more problematic. Um, but there's no reason why using an on-chain transaction, I shouldn't be able to load money into a wallet form. It could be a Web2, Web3 wallet, it could be a hybrid between, and then instantly send money to my father who lives in France, for example. Um, doing that today would be incredibly painful. But again, if we're kind of a trusted party between each other, using the underlying blockchain technology would be a way for me in real time to send value, money, a stablecoin form to him. Maybe it arrives in USDC, maybe it arrives in a Euro-denominated stablecoin. Again, these exist. But once it's in that format, trading between the two of them also would be that much more efficient. Again, there's even the FX industry is something that potentially could get disrupted down the line if stablecoins pr- proliferate and if we start seeing them denominated in multiple currencies. Yeah, I think almost all of those examples are, are in essence, cross-border examples of the challenges associated with moving value. And that's been an age-old problem. And, you know, it's it's where individuals like to say cryptocurrencies also provide high value because I can move my Bitcoin to you. And what that does not resolve is the local problem you mentioned, the exchange. And is that exchange really operating in my benefit? Is it a good exchange? Is it technology sound? Is it going to lose it the value in the process because it gets hacked? Um, in fact, exchanges are where almost all of the hacks have taken place and losses have taken place within the Bitcoin environment. So I look at JPM coin, and that's being widely used, not just by uh, JP Morgan internally, but by businesses to move money internationally. And in part, JPM's credibility provides significant safety to the movement of that value. Signet again, is actually a regulated environment. So I guess my challenge here is I understand the benefits of getting rid of regulation because it lowers costs, but it also increases risk. And I guess everybody has to make up their own mind what their risk parameters are. I happen to be very conservative. I like to make sure that I've got what I have in my tight little fists. Others are willing to take a lot more risk to save five cents. They'll have to decide. Fair points. Uh, I'll take the other side of that because this sure. is a podcast, so we're supposed to, right? But um, the the first point I made was was not cross border. I mean, anyone who has liquidity bridging or you know working capital is important for SMEs. There is definitely a domestic value in moving funds on chain or digitally via a CBDC. It doesn't have to always be blockchain. Um, but there's definitely improvements on a domestic level that can be made. The point around kind of JP Morgan, I mean, there was a time when Lehman Brothers were very well trusted. So saying that, you know, a bank is irrefutably trustworthy and will look after your funds is historically not always correct. Although, yes, I do think JPM is a good company and I would trust them with my money as well. But I think the point of crypto in general is that you don't even need the intermediary risk. You're completely removing it. If you can self-custody your own assets, then yes, we hear about people losing private keys and such like, um, but that's kind of an individual loss. Most crypto wallets are very, very secure. Uh, They tend to be breached by phishing scams, the same as happens in the traditional world, uh, on traditional banks. So I'm not saying it's there's no risk. I'm just saying that the risk problem moves. The onus of looking after your funds goes from a bank to you. Now, 
again, let's look at the cross-border example. If you're in a market with hyperinflation like Zimbabwe or Argentina have experienced, do you want to hold your funds in the peso, which is going to lose value at you know, 60% a year against most other major fiats? Or would you like to maybe hedge a bit, hold some in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, hold some in USTC potentially? In that world, you could argue that actually doing things outside of your regulated banking networks is much, much more beneficial. And at worst, it gives optionality to the end user. And I think that's key too, is that I don't think it's one or the other or Web3 eats Web2. It's about convergence. And you're going to find that the technology has a lot of potential to improve lives for people. But equally, moving away from a very centralized model that the world runs on today, of course, regulators will potentially be worried about that due to some very valid concerns around controls, not being able to tax effectively and such like. But there's also value, I think, that comes with it. And philosophically, I think a lot of the Web3 users like the idea that you know, in this world of hyper surveillance and and monitor and monitoring, this is a way for them to actually alleviate some of those concerns and feel in control of their own wealth, their own value stores. Um, and the last point I'll make is Swift gets hacked a lot too. Uh, the technology is not perfect, and you know, of what, how much was I mean, two hundred trillion or something probably moved on Swift. Um, I don't know the exact percentage off the top of my head, but it's not like there was that was a risk-free environment either. There are definitely hacks that take place on on both sides. Totally agree. And again, it's measuring that risk. With if I am in a in a country where the financial system is uh, in freefall all of a sudden the risk associated even with an NFT might look valid. I'll just take my chances. So it is all a balance. And as you state, over time, these risks will start to become mitigated. They have to. And the practicality of the stable coins and cryptocurrencies will become better and better. Um, It's just, you have to pick and choose right now pretty carefully. Yeah, completely. I mean, I, I see this perfect vision of the future where there are many CBDCs, but also many stable coins, and they are in some ways interoperable. So you actually get the best of both. You know, you can have a central bank issued uh, CBDC, which doesn't have to run on the banking networks, by the way, at all. It can run direct to consumers. So, you know, the Fed could have sent, again, those stimulus checks directly to people as opposed to via any intermediaries. Um, but at the same time, if I'll just use USDC as the example again. If a USDC could be recognized as the equivalent of a US dollar, then it allows that interoperability and seamless movement between this new sort of blockchain decentralized world and the traditional centralized world that in many cases may be viewed as more trustworthy or secure. But the point is, again, let's give the consumer optionality. People, I think, are choosing to engage in Web3 for a variety of reasons, but I think there is value in both having a centralized custodian and guarantor like the US government, um, but equally there's value in holding completely different asset classes in different ways. I I suspect it's not reasonable to do here. I'd like to understand your definition of Web3 um, because I, 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 I tend to stick with standards-based web, HTML, TCP IP, and the like. And what I see evolving is purely commercial. Um, But that's probably a discussion for another day. (laughs) Yeah, defining Web3 is in the same way that actually defining Web2 or Web1 is probably not a one sentence. It's more of a... (laughs) It feels like a zeitgeist. It's more like a transitionary period. But again, 
when we look at Web3, the one consistent thing you'll always come back to, go away from DeFi, go away from NFTs, go away from cryptocurrencies, uh, but you will always come back to blockchain. And I think oh. that's where the value will be realized is looking okay. at how And that's does- actually where the standards are evolving. We have DNS evolving to the blockchain. We have uh, identity and and evolving to the blockchain. And so from a standards perspective, we are starting to move components of the internet into the blockchain, which hopefully creates a foundation for other blockchains to operate on top of. And Absolutely. that it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and there's no reason to believe that Swift won't, you know, yeah. jump into that world as well. I think that that we take this view as well, but technology evolves the whole time and definitions evolve. And if the definition of value is evolving beyond fiat, okay, then we and our role in the industry is to help our customers and their customers move value seamlessly. Um, But of course, if new technologies emerge that improve upon that, I think it would be foolish of any organization who's involved in maybe even at, you know, traditional ways of doing things not to look into this and see if it can prove improve operations for their business and efficiencies for their users and we end in total concurrence (laughs) (laughs) i've actually got one final question before we wrap things up and i'm really glad that the conversation went down that path there uh towards the end of the last responses um because, you know, we were certainly talking about, you know, stable coins, cryptocurrencies, central bank digital currencies, NFTs, Web 3.0. Uh, so, Bradley, you know, kind of with all of those things, I think some of the times individuals kind of lump all of that together. And we're kind of having the back and forth. Again, to Tim's point, it was kind of a, hey, th- there's risk associated in kind of what's your risk tolerance around it. But what should businesses really kind of be asking themselves, not only about stable coins, but about this kind of whole digital evolution that's going on before they kind of dive into it, like kind of a dunking their toe into the water, so to speak? Like, what are those big level questions that they should be really asking, asking and pondering on before they kind of make a commitment? They probably need to take a step back and understand everything fully. And I'm not saying that they don't. I'm just saying that I also went on my own educational journey in the last few years. What helped me was to try and look at what the corner pieces were in the same way that when you find a puzzle, that's the way that you start. And you have no idea what the picture is when you start it off. But over time, it gradually becomes clearer. Understand what an NFT is. Understand what just blockchain is. Understand what a distributed ledger is. Understand what a stablecoin is. Understand what a cryptocurrency is. Understand what DeFi is. And, you know, a retailer may look at DeFi and say, this has no relevance to my business. Good point. It very probably does not. But if you're a brokerage where your customers are expecting you to show a return on their investment, maybe you should be looking into DeFi because that's how a lot of people are trying to see their assets, stablecoin, cryptocurrencies appreciate in value. And then I think the previous points, I'll just reiterate those. Get an understanding for what the blockchain technology can do. And if, for example, you're in an industry and you're a fintech and cash flow is important to you, then very potentially the application of stablecoins would have value within your business. Um, If you're a content producer, very possibly NFTs will be something that you're user base or your fan base will find appealing. So it's very much, you know, horses for courses, understand your business, but also understand that Web3 is not one term, you need to break it down, look at the different components, understand how they have value, and then see, does that Venn diagram overlap with your needs? And if it does, maybe now's the time to start looking into it, because that line of best fit in all things blockchain is 
very consistently up and to the right. Only thing I'd add to that is if somebody starts talking about Web3 and trying to sell you on it, ask a lot of questions and go out and learn. <laughs> yeah, we always see this with new technologies. There's always going to be some bad actors, but you know the, the bumps in the road, I believe that it's worth it. We've seen this with almost every new technology. There's definitely exploits and things that come out, but the crypto space in general has a lot of very smart people working on it. And that tells me something. I tend to find people smarter than me, of which there are many, especially the technical ones. And if they're taking an active interest in it, it tells me that there's probably something which they're seeing that improves upon existing technologies that have been in place today. But absolutely, as a consumer, be cautious. As a business, be cautious and keep asking questions. If you don't know the answer, keep asking until you do. Excellent. Yeah, I think I don't think I could have said it better myself, Bradley. So thank you so much, uh, Tim Bradley, for this absolutely amazing conversation uh, around stable coins and Web 3.0. And I hope to have you both back on the podcast real soon. Thank you very Thanks, much, Bradley. Thanks, Ryan. Just Tim.